how can I have spiritual integrity with my sex life, you know? And like, that doesn't have to look like I'm a fucking Puritan. So that's why I mean, I'm curious to ask other people about what their experience is with it, you know? What does their, what does others healing look like? everybody this is Ryan and this is Louisa and you're listening to sober sex I made a promise to myself to stop not listening what it looks like now is that I make conscious choices around my sexuality it started with putting down the substances really and starting to listen and the listening to my body has changed Galil Rifati is an entrepreneur and author of I Forgot to Die, a memoir detailing his harrowing experiences of addiction and remembering to live is a book about how he became who he is today and the lessons he has learned on the road to happy destiny. Khalil was also a staff member at the treatment center I went to and an active part of my early recovery. Uh, we drove around a lot singing at the top of our lungs. It was awesome. He is now the owner of Sub- Sun Life Organics and Malibu Beach Yoga and has founded R- Riviera Recovery. And this conversation is a hoot. An a absolute riot. riot. Thank you for being here, Khalil. What about you, Khalil? Tell me about you. We're not here to talk about me. We want to hear about you. Me? I, I mean, not not nothing all that interesting. I make smoothies. Um, and, and, uh, and I wrote a, I wrote a book that two. People, I did write two books. Yeah. The one, <laughs> the, one was a bestseller. And, um, I think because of the subject matter, everybody loves a, a Cinderella story. Um, and then the second one was really the answer to the first one's questions, which was how did you go from being a 109 pound homeless junkie walking corpse, living on skid row, mentally ill, convicted felon, high school dropout, to being a millionaire. That that seemed to be the question on everybody's mind. It didn't matter oh who was Yeah, who was it didn't matter who was interviewing me or who was podcasting me or whatever it's called. Everybody wanted to know was there family money? Was it nepotism? Was it generational wealth, second generation fame? Um and the answer was no. It was, as Louisa knows, it was, I had to get any job I could, which at that time was, after getting sober, was you know walking dogs and washing cars. And eventually, I kind of manipulated my way into getting a job at this fancy rehab that was owned by this guy, um, Fred Siegel. Um, by the way, Louisa, Freddie just died. Um, oh, my God. Yeah, unfortunately, I had to break that news to you. But um, so, yeah, and then working in rehabs, two at the same time. Um, you, you had other rehabs, Khalil. <laughs> I thought well, we were the only ones. No, I, I worked in two and then I ended up opening one. But and, and I was a sober companion. I mean, I did it. I did it all. I did anything. I did anything I could to put bread on the table. What what I found interesting um was that people really didn't want to know the truth. People wanted to believe that, you know, you could just do a sex video and then become famous and make $20 million a year, or you can just get lucky and, you know, and then all of a sudden you're rich. Like people, people really enjoyed the the Cinderella story version of, of Khalil going from rags to riches. The second book, which really, 
talks about how I did it, like literally moment by moment. This is what I did. This is how I survived. This is you know how I invested my money. People didn't care about that. They don't want to believe that there's hard work involved in, in, in achieving massive success and living the life of your dreams. People just want to believe that people get lucky. And in my case, maybe that's true for some people, but in my case, in my own personal story and anybody who I know that has a lot of blessings in their life and, and success in whatever area that, that they're in, it's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of hard work. And, and the difference between me and most of my, and, and again, Luisa, it's so cool to be sharing this with your audience because you saw so I'm, I'm going to say something which most people think, oh, he's just being humble and it's bullshit. I'm not being humble. All of my peers, all of them, uh, I guess wouldn't be appropriate to name names, but everybody <laughs> that I worked with- Breaking every- starting now, just kidding. <laughs> yeah, no, but everybody that I worked with was taller than me, younger than me, better looking than me, smarter than me. All of the people that I hung out with were taller than me, smarter than me had resources, were more educated than me. Every person that I was around had every opportunity in the world to go and do anything and everything they ever wanted to do. Most did nothing. Most. I mean, especially considering kind of the the space in which you are operating, which is Malibu, which is an amazing, amazing place, but also like so incredibly bizarre. (laughs) Okay, it's tell bizarre. me about Malibu because I have I've never been I haven't been to West Coast of the United States at all. What is Malibu about? Well, I mean it, it it's uh it's lifestyles of the rich and aimless would be sort of a snide <laughs> a snide way of putting it. But you know, Malibu's that place that when you make it, that's where you go. That's where you know Lady Gaga lives and that's where the Hemsworth boys were living. Um, until recently, that's where the Chili Peppers live. That Rick Rubin. I mean, Malibu is that place where once you make your fortune and fame, you move there. So it's a town where nobody has a job. Everybody is armed to the teeth with cash and fame. Houses are, you know, five million dollars for a, a shitty starter home, and oh my God. and up to a hundred million dollars for um, a bluff top estate. And it's a very it's a very beautiful place to live because it's ocean and mountains, but it, but imagine being homeless still because when Louisa and I first met, I was still technically very homeless. I, I had a roof. You're doing a lot of house sitting. As I, I recall. House sitting. Yes. <laughs> I remember that moment in my recovery. Yeah. I was like, and, I'm staying here. <laughs> and, and even even after my sponsor let me move in to one of the wings of his house. Um, one of the wings. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I still... It wasn't my house. I was still technically sober. I think, God, I think three and a half years into my recovery, and I got up, you know, seven o'clock in the morning, six o'clock in the morning, whatever, and walked the dogs, and and then went and washed the cars, and then went up to the canyon, and I did my eight-hour shift, and then I went to the second rehab that I worked at and did the overnight shift, and so for me, Malibu wasn't. For me, Malibu was very, very intimidating, and it was difficult for me to look around where, you know, you turn 16, you get a Range Rover or an Escalade. Um, I was driving, Luisa, do you remember the Blue Devil? I was driving a bl- <laughs> this car we called the Blue Devil, which was a, 
an eighties Volvo that had like over 200,000 miles on it. And, and the whole thing was essentially an ashtray. I mean, at a certain point I just stopped <laughs> ashing in the ashtray and I would just ash in the car. Love it. There was one, giant <laughs> ashtray. but Malibu is amazing. If you have a bunch of money or, or if you are living off of second generation fame and, and the, the great recipient of generational wealth, Malibu is pretty intimidating. If you're a loser and you're a convicted felon in a high school dropout, and you're working at a couple of rehabs, trying to feed yourself and trying to make your way in life. It, it was it was tough, and I was like in my early to mid thirties. I was in my mid thirties when Luisa and I met, so not exactly where I thought I'd end up in life. So, how did you end up where you are now? Like Which is what? where? <laughs> tell Which her. Is, tell yeah. listeners where you're where you're reporting from. Oh, I'm in Austin, Texas now. Um, I wound up in Austin, Texas five months ago after going through a very challenging time personally um, with a couple of different things, um, mainly losing my mom, um, which was the most challenging thing I've ever been through, um, Mm -hmm. which is so bizarre to me because the first thing I did when I started making money was go back and rescue my mom. My, my dad had left her high and dry, um, in the, in the late seventies and she had nothing. She was living in a housing project called Kenwood gardens. So the first money I made, I went back to Ohio and I bought my mom a house in the fanciest neighborhood that, that my hometown of Toledo, Ohio had. And I got to be the hero. I, I got to spoil the shit out of my mom. My mom hadn't been back to Poland in 39 years and that's where she was born. And I got to be the hero. I got to be the big shot. And I got to just constantly send her gifts and spoil her and send her on vacation. So I always thought that when she died, I'd be like, oh, you know, that's sad. You know, she's in her 80s now. Um, but I'm good because I was a great son and I corrected the sins of my father. And I, I had <laughs> unfortunately not the case. When, when my mom took her final breath, as, as tough as I thought I was and as resilient as I thought I was, um, I fucking crumbled. I completely fell to pieces. And when, when you lose your mom, I don't know what it's like for, for girls, but you know, for guys, when you lose your mom, there's a piece of you that, that dies with her. And um, it, it shattered me and it made me wake up to the realization that this is all transitory. And life is very short. So I better wake the fuck up and figure out what I want to do. And I thought I was going to move to Miami. Um, But Taylor, who you guys met briefly, my girlfriend, I really wanted her to make the decision of where we were going to end up living. And she had been to Austin and she loved it. So we went to Miami first and I was like, oh my God, this is it. Like fucking beach, warm, nice, rich people, you know, like... (laughs) Just awesome. They can and afford th- these goddamn smoothies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then, and then she said, "Well, what about Austin?" And I'm like, "Oh, sure. You know, let's go visit." And we were here like a week, and the knots in my stomach came undone, and my shoulders dropped and stopped touching my earlobes, metaphorically speaking. And just that overwhelming sense of impending doom began to subside. Um, and I, I'm not joking. I would walk along the river here. They, they call it a lake, but I, I would walk and it's a river, by the way, <laughs> I would, I would walk along the river and I kept looking down at my shirt because I kept 
thinking that I must have spilled something on myself because every fifth person would either smile or kind of like not not laugh, but like I don't know, they would just be like looking at me like sort of enjoying themselves. To which I always thought, like, fuck, did I spill something on myself? <laughs> this is weird. <laughs> yeah, it's really weird because in LA, nobody does that. I mean, in, a, in LA, if you're over the age of 30 and you're not, you know, visibly and recognizably famous, um, you're invisible. Nobody gives a fuck about you. And if you have a bunch of money and you can wear the right Patek Philippe and get the right G Wagon, you can mitigate that a little bit. But, you know, to go from one of the most pretentious places on the planet um, to going to Austin, Texas, where people are just good people and nice people and people here like people because they like people, not because maybe you can get their demo to Rick Rubin or maybe you can get them backstage to the, you know, to the Chili Peppers concert or whatever, you know, weirdness goes on there for the first time in 29 years. I remember Ohio and I remember where I was from and I remember who I was and I saw how far I had fallen from that person. Um, you know, LA is amazing. Malibu is amazing. There's a lot of great things about it. I am forever grateful for everything that it has given me, but I lost myself. I lost myself with the money and with, you know, the hanging out with the cool people. I lost myself for sure. I mean, and it's interesting, like so much of what we discuss in this podcast is around like embodiment and kind of how <laughs> it sounds so basic, but I think for a lot of sober people, this is like, or at least for me, it was a very difficult concept to grasp this idea of like how I experience feelings in my body. And you were talking about like the knots in your stomach unclenching and your shoulders dropping from your earlobes. It sounds like your body gave, gave like a resounding yes to this move specifically. It did. And I think any, and I don't want to talk too highly of Austin because we have enough idiots like me coming here now. And, you know, <laughs> Stay away, assholes. Just kidding. I don't, yeah, I don't want, I don't want, <laughs> Mine I, don't, now. I don't want California people bringing their politics here to Austin and destroying this incredible town that is both liberal and conservative at the same time. But here's the shocking part about that. They're respectful of one another's views. Mm. If you even joke about being conservative. If you if you wear a cross in LA, people look at you and think you're a racist. If you were to put an American flag on your house back there, people think that you're racist. And that's so sad to me because my parents are both immigrants to this amazing country of ours. And I am I, I would not call myself uh, a conservative or a liberal. I would call myself a human being that wants the best for everyone. But, you know, when I was a little kid, uh, if you weren't a Democrat and a liberal, you were a monster. And as an, as an adult with many businesses and business ventures, if you don't start to lean conservative and at least fiscally, I'm not talking about socially. I mean, socially, I don't understand how you know, I don't understand that side of the conservative party, but fiscally, if you're not leaning conservative, then you're insane. I mean, unless of course you have so much money that you've lost touch with reality. So <laughs> I believe that the answer is in the middle. And I believe that we need to respect one another and we need to help one another and love one another. That vibe is so prevalent here in Austin that it just, it's amazing. So yeah, 
I, I got a visceral physical reaction to being in a place where people respect one another, honor one another, smile at one another, wave at one another. And another thing, and this is really important, I don't ever remember being in LA and hearing a waitress or a bartender or someone that works at public storage talking about buying a home. Oh, yeah. And, and here you hear that all the time. You hear people who have jobs, normal jobs like me, buying houses. In LA, I don't care if you have four jobs, you ain't buying a house. It's just not realistic. So um, there's a middle class here that is not a- available to to people living in Los Angeles. There is no middle class there. And it's sad. And that breeds a lot of resentment, a lot of anger. So yeah, I'm stoked to be here. I wish my mom was here to see it all because I'm building the dopest house ever. Um, Luisa, I hope you come and visit. And Rose, obviously you're welcome as well. But I'm, I'm building the house of our dreams. And, um, and it's amazing. How has pandemic life been treating you like it, within all that change? Pandemic life, I think for anybody is going to do one of two things. It's going to bring out the best of you or it's going to bring out the worst of you. And unfortunately for most of the people without their sports, without their going to the shopping mall, without their going to the bar and eating chicken wings and drinking themselves blind every night, without their distractions, you saw some of the worst come out of people on both sides of the political spectrum. The behaviors that I witnessed on both CNN and Fox News were disgusting to me, and it makes me very, very sad. My own personal experience with COVID, I realized I was a workaholic. I realized my girlfriend is a workaholic, and we almost immediately, our relationship after being together for five years became better than it had ever been, more intimate than it had ever been, and just more more enjoyable. I mean, I got to spend time with my cat. I got to spend time with my girlfriend. Um, you know, what I've come to realize, especially in the last 15 months, um, is that women are sacred. And and I don't I don't say that lightly. Women are are sacred. Women need to take shit over. We've made a fucking mess of this planet. And it's time for women to stop fighting for equality and recognize that they're not equal. They're fucking superior. They're not equal. They're superior. You cannot tell me that we are equal to to a being that can bring life into this existence. Create life within your own body. I can't even. I can't. <laughs> I'm doing a dance right now. Kyle. You can't see it. It's I'm because like, she's actually coming pregnant. back for another episode. <laughs> I'm like, I need to hear this as a pregnant person. This I, is beautiful. I'm, I'm telling you, your womb is sacred, Rose. Listen to you're, you're, I feel <laughs> you, Rose. You are sacred, Louise. Tell me about me, Kyle. I need to hear it. <laughs> you, you are sacred. My mother was sacred. Women are sacred, and if if women ran the world. I don't, I'm not talking about the country right now. I'm talking about the world. If women ran the world, there wouldn't be homelessness. There wouldn't be people starving to death. There wouldn't be wars. There wouldn't be all of this shit going on. Now, the challenge is, oh, well, then we need to get a woman running this country. The, my, my personal challenge is with that. Okay, so we get this amazing, sacred woman to run this country. What about all these evil motherfuckers running all these other countries? Running China, running... 
running North Korea, running Russia. Like the reason that I sometimes take comfort in an evil old white man running this country is because there's a lot of evil fucking men out there that want to destroy this country. But taking politics aside, women do need to run the world. My my whole con- my whole company is run by women. My corporate staff is eighty five percent women. That's beautiful. Yeah, oh, yeah, and, and I mean, rightfully so, and rightfully and, so. And, and on goodness, a man- you're on sober sex. You know, where the main goal of this podcast is to overthrow the capitalist white supremacist patriarchy. So <laughs> here we Good. are. <laughs> Good, fucking do it, and I'll be the first to vote for you or support you in any way that I can. Um, but I, my, my, eighty five percent of my corporate staff are are women. Eighty percent of all management in my company are women, and ninety percent of my associates are all women. Sun Life Organics, as strange as as strange as it is, because if you look at the symbol of it, it's a pink, it's a pink lotus, which I don't think. <laughs> So basically, I didn't know this, but Sun Life Organics, the logo of which is a beautiful vagina. (laughs) Literally. um, The name is, (laughs) the the name is, the name speaks of the life that you bring forth from your own womb, Rose. Everything about this brand is girl power. Everything about it, which is bizarre that a guy was the conduit and the catalyst that brought it forth. But I, I, you know, Louisa or Rose as well. I mean, you remember when you're like three years sober, four years sober, five years sober, and you're like, I'm fucking awesome. I worked so hard for this. I'm so amazing. And then you get like six, seven, eight years sober and you're like, what is happening? uh, Yeah, maybe. (laughs) I don't know what I'm doing. Maybe I was tapped on the shoulder by my creator and maybe I was gifted all of this, I think Mm -hmm. is a much more appropriate and accurate description it's the same thing with Sun Life. I really, in the first five years of owning it, I really thought I was fucking cool and look how awesome this brand is and these recipes just seem to come out of nowhere. No, the recipes, the name, the locations, the money, all of it came from divine feminine energy. All of it. It literally tapped this broken, sad little boy trapped inside this old man's body and said, check it out. You got a second chance at life because you are going to usher in this beautiful brand. You are going to be the conduit and the catalyst to bring forth this brand. You're going to run it for a while and do an awful fucking job, but eventually you're going to wake the fuck up to the fact that women need to run it and they're going to do an amazing job. And that's what's happening now. Now, Oh, and by the way, the girl that runs a company is from France. I don't know. If, oh, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Her name's Audrey and she's fucking Audrey, awesome. Yeah. Can barely love you, Audrey. Shout out Barely Alexander, but she's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, so to kind of pivot into an entirely different conversation, but maybe it'll maybe we'll have like a nice full circle. Um, you know, part of what we talk about here, in addition to to divine feminine energy, is um so sobriety and sexuality. So jumping into the deep end, what were some of the early messages you received around sex and sexuality? And also just to um edit. Um, as we mentioned at the top of the show, like we do an edit and if you end up feeling kind of uncomfortable, cause I know you have trauma in your story, like we will take any, anything out that you feel uncomfortable with. So. I don't know. I mean, if I, if I, if I bring up my inadequate penis size, um, <laughs> maybe we would edit that out, but I'm not going to bring that up. Um, <laughs> am I leaving that in? Um, yes. Um, Good. <laughs> if you, um, 
if you, let's see, I mean, I, I wouldn't even know where to begin with that. I, I'll just go right to the core of it. I mean, yeah, I was severely sexually traumatized as a kid and uh, highly sexualized as a, as a child because I was taught that that's how you got attention. So I was having intercourse by the time I was 12 years old and um, I had a very fruitful um experience as, as far as sexuality goes all throughout my early teens, teens, and up until my late twenties, especially when I got into the recreational, you know, the, the ketamine, ecstasy, psilocybin, acid, the fun stuff before the dark stuff really took over the heroin and the crack and stuff. I had a very, 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 very sexual life. Um, here's what's very interesting about that. When you first get sober as a man, your biggest fear is that you're not going to be able to, tr to perform. Um, and I'm just speaking for men. Guys will use alcohol as a means of prolonging their ability to keep going, you know, because hopefully you're evolved enough as a man to understand that your job is to please a woman and to bring pleasure to a woman. And, you know, I hope most men get that part. Your fear as a newly sober guy is that you're going to, come too quick because you don't have the alcohol to, you know, kind of, uh, mitigate that. And it's a very real fear. And it's something that you have to work through as a man, learning how to control your impulses and learning how to pace yourself and slow down. So that in itself was a whole fucking journey. Um, rediscovering sexuality sober. That was very, very challenging. Um, Unpack, but, if you don't mind, we're going to slow you down. Can you unpack that a little bit? Just because I think that that's definitely something that like a lot of our listeners deal with, even though it's probably, it's a majority female listenership. Like we do have dudes who are sober who listen. And I think that that's a really important thing to discuss. Because again, like part of the reason we started the podcast is because there's so much kind of like lack of information, actually. There's a dearth of information around sober sexuality and what it looks like to kind of get back out there or have intimacy and authenticity in relationships after, you know, destroying your body and your libido with drugs and alcohol. Yeah. Well, I mean, and again, I can only speak for guys, but, you know, guys teach themselves to come quickly. You know, guys at a very young age start to masturbate and they teach themselves to come quickly. And they're doing it synthetically, meaning they're I'll date myself, but you know, initially it was with magazines and then eventually it was with, with the internet. Um, what happens when all of a sudden you're with an actual female, it's so overly stimulating that you ejaculate. So what guys learn at a very early age is if you drink first, you can slow that down and you can perform better. You, you get what men crudely refer to as whiskey dick right? You, you, you drink a few beers or a couple of shots and then you're able to perform better. Um, and that, and again, that's if you're like awake enough to understand that the object of sexuality is, is intimacy and, and pleasing one another. Many guys are so fucking caveman like that. They just think the purpose of sex is to ejaculate. And that's fucking pathetic. I mean, that makes me, that makes me sad, but, um, when now it's the same for women as well though we have this pressure on us that i think isn't talked about a lot with other women of the job is to make men come and also we had a failed sexual encounter if we didn't come so it's i don't think it's just one way i just think it's some old bullshit we've been sold about 
there must be an end to everything rather than it being a journey and experience. (laughs) Well, yeah. And what, and you're kind of helping me get to the punchline because what I found in sobriety is yes, it's important to please a female. And also if you can, if you can go out of your way and you can get as creative as you want to be as a man, but if you can go out of your way to make a woman have an orgasm first, then all the pressure's off. Then you can do whatever you want to do. And, and that was something that I learned in sobriety. Um, but here's the, I, I guess we, I can start at the end and maybe we can go backwards a little bit. Here's the thing that I didn't understand until my most recent relationship. Um, and it's bizarre cause I'm fucking old now, but I thought intimacy meant performing well. And Mm. I I know that's going to sound dumb, but I mean that sincerely. I mean, up until my, doesn't sound dumb at all. all. Okay. Well, I I thought up until my mid forties that you had to like perform really well. And then that's what intimacy, like, in other words, if you could get a girl to to have five orgasms or seven orgasms, then that meant you were really great at intimacy. I literally thought that it wasn't until my most recent relationship that I became so comfortable and was so in love and just felt so accepted that I realized that intimacy has nothing to do with the performance and it has nothing to do with counting orgasms or even an orgasm at all. It has to do with two human beings coming together in a pure and sacred way to share, to share energy. And, and man, I didn't know that. I had no fucking idea. And I was taught that silently through my, my most recent partner. We do this thing called steel on steel, which is like a 12 step, a small 12 step meeting on steroids. <laughs> but there's this part that asks, we use each other as a mirror to kind of talk about uh, our, our like emotional sobriety, physical sobriety. Uh, and it, it includes questions about intimacy, which is like, <laughs> how, how are your intimate relationships? And remember that intimacy means into me see. <laughs> seems it turns into like a joke <laughs> but at the same time like they kind of nailed it you know wow mind that's blown heavy. Khalil. <laughs> I that's heavy i never even thought about the into me see wow <laughs> just a gem it's, you can just it's pass intense on. when you've been in covid lockdown for like over a year you're like can you stop into me seeing <laughs> like can you into someone fucking else see because i need a break from this I think it's the best. I think it's the best thing ever. And intimacy can just mean holding hands. Intimacy can just be enjoying enjoying one another's comfortable silence. Like I obviously never shut the fuck up and she doesn't really talk a whole lot, but she's also taught me about the value of quiet time and quietness and just enjoying one another's presence. Well, it sounds like that walk that you started taking. I noticed my husband and I did the same in the lockdowns and we're in one again. I don't always say in the lockdowns, like it's a past thing. I think I'm in some kind of dissociation denial, but um, those walks and just those moments and, you know, sometimes the pressure of like 
penetration just is too much you know like we need so many different formulas to be able to have sexual intimacy and I think we forget that it can just look like a walk around the block and just turning your phone off for the evening or the weekend or whatever and just connecting by reading a book together or something and I think it's 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 a really exciting journey to be sober and in um, partnership with somebody because you get to learn like this whole other vocabulary, which I think those of us who grew up far too fast, was it sounds like you did, Khalil and me too, missed out on that bit, you know? I didn't know there was a getting to know you bit and it's like I'm doing it all the other way around, you know? I didn't know that it mattered. I didn't know. I mean, I heard other people talk about it or like I would see couples that did look deeply in love and comfortable with one another. And I just thought that that, that can't be real. I, yeah. I, really, I, I really, I really. Well, they definitely weren't having sex, like right, for sure. Right, right, right. <laughs> and it, and it, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's all there is. And like, you know, I have a lot of young people working for me um, just because of the nature of the business. I mean, it's smoothies and juices after all. It's not, you know, we're not. I don't know. We're splitting not atoms. <laughs> yeah, we're not. Yeah, we're not splitting atoms. We're not doing rocket surgery. What atoms? We're not. Atoms. <laughs> <laughs> I literally don't know what are atoms. Atoms. Well, I don't either. But we're not atoms. Atoms. <laughs> oh my god! I was like, like splitting atoms. atoms. <laughs> I'm like, why are you giving Adam a hard time? Why do adults need to do it and not children? <laughs> it's a biblical reference. Um, <laughs> I'm Jewish. I, <laughs> I skip that. <laughs> or, uh, um, it's. Um, it is, uh, it, it, yeah, it, it's, it's interesting because I see so many people in so many shitty relationships and they're struggling and they're fighting and, you know, now I can't now with the advent of cancel culture and all that stuff, I obviously cannot interject my opinions whatsoever, but you know, many, many years ago, I would say something. I would say like, if, if you're fighting all the time or he's jealous all the time, or he's not treating you nice, or he's putting you down why are you together? Hmm. I, I, you know, just like me, I didn't know that a relationship is, is supposed to be loving and supportive. I mean, yeah, you're supposed to push one another's buttons and you're supposed to go through, you know, challenges, but I see so many relationships that are just broken and sad. And, uh, you know, much like myself when I was younger, I thought, I thought that's just the way that it was. And it's not. If somebody is not lifting you up and being kind to you and loving you up and supporting you and bringing out the best in you, you shouldn't be in that relationship, in my opinion. I'll talk. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. It's quite beautiful to kind of have this conversation with you, you know, kind of about 14 years, maybe a little bit more after we've met, especially because we haven't been necessarily in consistent contact other than social media observing each other because um, yeah. I think that like as as I was getting sober you were just embarking upon kind of your first sober relationship and it's really exciting to kind of see how far you've come you know it's it's such a weird thing because like <laughs> I know I think that people who got sober like literally a month after me I'm like I'm basically your mother <laughs> yeah so I think you have like about 15 years more than me, but it's really only like, I think a couple at this point, which is crazy. And it's amazing to kind of hear you talk about your personal evolution in terms of like intimate relationships. Like you've grown into a man, Khalil. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> well, I mean, I couldn't, I could not all joking aside, I could not be any more proud of you. And I just, when I see your stuff and I see that you're, you're, I, I remember, I remember just thinking like, you know, you were a kid. I mean, regardless, you were probably 20 at the time, mm -hmm. but to me, 
you were a kid. You were you were just a little kid and you had dreams and you were so persistent about your dreams. You were so you were so Nothing has changed. I'm just filling everybody in. I mean you were you were so adamant that this is what I'm going to do. I'm gonna be a DJ. I'm gonna make music. I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna do that. It was it was almost like a like a mantra. And when I look at, you know, and obviously I'm not going to use names now, but when I look at some of your peers that, that didn't have that dream and didn't have that drive and didn't have that desire, um, and they're, they're pretty much in the exact same place that they mm-hmm. were 15 years later, maybe they have a little bit more money or maybe their family gives them a little bit more money, but they haven't done anything. They, they, they've shopped. And they've taken some trips and they've had some really horrible relationships that I had to witness from <laughs> afar, but they didn't, they never went and they, they never did anything. And, you know, you were like, this is what I'm going to do. Now we got to give credit where credit's due. Your mom is fucking amazing. And oh my God. And, and I love Brown. I mean, your mom had this confidence and this inner beauty and outer beauty, but your mom had this knowingness about what she, who she was, what she was and what she was going to do. And I was so envious because I didn't know my head from my ass. I mean, so I think, I think an apple, I know an apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. So, so God bless your mom for being such an awesome woman um, and supporting Amen. you. Amen. <laughs> Brown Johnson, not allowed to listen. Love you. (laughs) You you have done exactly what you said you were gonna do against all odds. And and I love it. And I love I love I love the fact that we're reconnecting. But I I am sad. I am sad, you know, to see your your peer group and my peer group, many of them stuck in the exact same patterns all these many years later. And it just speaks Or dead. You know, I think that that's like also the reality of Addiction, you know? Yeah, that, that part, that part I sweep under the rug because it's too, (laughs) how it, um, because it's too painful. Mm. It's too painful to think about. I, I, I'm, I, it's just too painful to think that people are missing all of what we have going on right now. I mean, again, it's perspective. You can say like the fucking world's ending and you know, Trump's a monster or Biden's a monster or the world's going to end. I'm I'm like fuck man it's beautiful outside I I am on I am on the computer now um with with a, a little girl who's now a powerful strong woman and unlike most young girls out there rather than just sit around and take pictures of your behind and keep posting pictures of yourself in a bikini you actually went out and did something you didn't, you didn't, your goal wasn't to become an influencer. <laughs> that didn't They're, exist when I got sober, to be fair. No, but, <laughs> you, either, but, you wouldn't have chosen it, Lou. You wouldn't no, have. But how about this? There's no integrity in it. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> you, Thanks, you, de- you decided that you were going to live your dream. Therefore, you ended up by default becoming a massive influencer. Women can look at you now and go, holy shit, that girl that's on that documentary went through all this shit. She was in rehab and she went through all these struggles. She's I mean, so uncomfortable right she's now. So uncomfortable. You can't, <laughs> she's can literally, like, <laughs> she's just, she's barely sitting still. Louisa, Louisa, out of respect, because I don't know how, how 
you know, much we can talk about, but come on, you had fucking massive challenges and you could have very easily just not done what you did. You could have had all the right excuses and you could have just existed and you and your other little friend who is now, you know, very, very famous and successful and whatever. Like, who, me? <laughs> yes, Rose. Please don't refer to me as little. I'm currently massive. <laughs> you guys decided to go fucking grind it out and take massive risks. And I, and I multiple times, many, many times, probably more times than you can remember, watched you guys shattered in a, in a puddle of tears thinking that, you know, you, you wanted to do this or you wanted to do that. And, oh my God, it's going to be too difficult or whatever. And both of you guys rose up out of that adversity and, and you succeeded against all odds. And it's, you know, it's fucking amazing, man. It's amazing. Thank you. (laughs) And just let's rain on Lou a bit. Let's rain on Lou. I know it's awful. I love seeing you so uncomfortable. Rose is delighting and I'm just like spinning around in my chair like a closer video. (laughs) But this is intimacy, babe. It is Get it. Like we have to accept compliments and um, it's really interesting because I don't know if you know about Lou's journey here in Paris. I'm sorry. I'm just going to shed it. (laughs) But... um, you know, she's helped so many people here, like really helped people, like in a way that people weren't getting helped and it's pretty cool. So whatever part you had to play in um, her healing transformation, thank you so much for sending oh. her this way. Yes, My thank mom. you, Khalil, for letting us like sing as loud as we possibly could in your car every waking minute we were with you. <laughs> you know, that singing, singing is singing and dancing and laughing um, is, is the best medicine and God knows, oh, yeah. God knows we all needed a lot of medicine. And the funny thing about me, you know, working at a rehab at that time or being what they call the counselor was nobody needed, <laughs> nobody needed more help than me. I mean, I, I, I would literally raise my hand in groups and start asking questions. <laughs> and I'm, not, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. Most of the people thought I was a client. We were doing, no, we were doing this course called, um, heart's virtue. Do you remember that Louisa? Is that the one where you, you, you you name your heart's virtue and mine is creative integrity. And I forget the other one loyalty. Yeah. Well, here's, here's the worst. <laughs> What's part your heart's virtue, that? Khalil? <laughs> yeah. Here's the worst part about it. My heart, I am committed to pure, authentic self-expression. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it, boo. <laughs> yeah. But here's the problem with that. I was the counselor. I'm not supposed to have one. <laughs> I literally took that course hostage and the guy that was teaching it, the guy that was teaching it felt so bad for me that he gave me all this extra attention. He gave me his number. I ended up talking to him for hours on the phone. And then towards the end of the course, he said to me, like, you know, I've, I've never had a, a, a patient, you know, forgive me or client respond so well. And I'm like, what? Oh, I'm not a patient. I work. <laughs> I'm a here. fucking counselor. Yeah, <laughs> and I, here. I also recall you reminding us that, like, if 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 ever you were questioned, like for methods or otherwise, <laughs> like you're just like I'm expressing myself because my heart's virtue. <laughs> that was my it's heart's virtue. Pure, pure authentic, authentic self expression. Yeah. <laughs> what was yours, yeah. name? Because I want to do mine, so I'm just asking you what yours was. I again. believe it's creative integrity. 
Yeah. Yeah. And then I can't, I, there was a, like, it was a part B and I can't remember it, but creative integrity. I, I still remember that. <laughs> well, here we are 15 years later and I'm, I'm expressing you know, yourself. <laughs> I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know that. I didn't know that I was going to express myself through smoothies and acai bowls, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> it, it, it really it's doesn't matter. Authentic. I could not have created a more perfect canvas or, or screen for me to express myself on because all these amazing women run this company and then I go around the world and I find all these exotic ingredients like lotus pollen and, and uh, these raw cacao beans from the jungles of Ecuador that are an heirloom variety or this maca that comes from this farm um, up above uh, Machu Picchu that that has this heirloom variety of maca that's that's only grown above, I think, 12,000 square feet. But anyway, I get to take all that stuff and I get to put it in a bowl or put it in a cup and, and serve it to people and people love it. And it just, it feels good. It feels pure. It feels like, I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't think fame would have looked good on me. I think I was arrogant and self-centered enough and sort of broken enough that had I accomplished what I wanted to in terms of music or acting or whatever it was, I don't think that would have ended well. And and now that I've fed enough of those people and been around enough of those people and I watch how they have to hide in their houses and they can't go out and they can't just express themselves openly and honestly or their show will get canceled or they'll get kicked out of their band or they'll get kicked, you know, they won't ever get to do a movie again. I I can take certain liberties that most famous people can't. And I, I love my life. I wouldn't change anything about it. Oh, that's so beautiful to hear. So I just want to ask you, because we're talking about recovery and intimacy, what is your sex ideal today? And who do you want to show up as in your sexual romantic partnership? Supportive and generous. That, that oh. is, yeah, that's, that's mm. my, my only goal at this late point in life is I just want to be supportive and generous with my intimacy, with my sexuality. Um, I don't want to do anything other than that. My, my, you know, my pleasure, um, comes absolutely way down the line if at all. And, um, I just want to make my partner feel loved and nurtured and supported. Oh, that's sound so like a beautiful. dream partner. That's really beautiful. I'm That's fucking old. Really, it took really a long beautiful. time to get here, girl. <laughs> well, you get that. It doesn't matter, does it? You got there. Yeah, I don't. I don't. No, I don't think so. I mean, I wish I could have. I wish I could have figured this out at a. At a I'm just walking around the hotel room, making sure she's not in here. Um, <laughs> um, I I didn't I didn't know that it was going to play out like this, but but I couldn't. I really couldn't be happier, and I just want her to feel pleasure and feel love and feel supportive and, and how, you know, I ruined so many relationships and I, as a young man, not in my sobriety, but as a young man, I was a cheater and I, I know why I was a cheater because I've worked on myself enough to understand that I was scared of being abandoned. But what I learned through the 12 steps was all of those women who abandoned me, all of my resentments, all of my fourth step stuff, um, and I could, you know, I can rattle them off. There was, there was Kim, there was Corey, there was Claudia, there was Jamie, uh, and there was Sam. When I did all the writing and I, 
you know, was open and honest about the way that I behaved. And I had a sponsor that was smart enough to ask me very pointed questions like, did you curse at them? Of course I cursed at them. That's the relationship. Did you cheat on them? Yes, Robbie. Of course I cheated on them. That's what fucking guys do. Guys cheat. Really? Guys cheat? I'm like, yeah. Are you really asking me that question? All guys cheat. Yes, Robbie. All guys cheat. So you know all 3.5 billion men living on this planet. Oh, shut the fuck up. I don't need to know all of them. I know guys and guys cheat. That was my paradigm. My paradigm was that the way that men behaved in movies in the 70s and the 80s was how men were supposed to behave and that men cheated and that that was fine and that women you know, weren't supposed to cheat or didn't cheat. Um, and, and he kept asking me enough questions like that to where we got to the point where he said, Khalil, I'm sorry to tell you this, but those girls didn't abandon you. And I'm like, the fuck they didn't. And he's like, no, buddy, they escaped. And when he said that, it took my breath away. And then he followed it up with, if you really love someone, you don't cheat on them. You don't curse them out. You don't, my whole thing was, I never hit a girl. I never hit a girl. Well, upon further inspection, did you ever push one? Yeah, but that's not hitting. Did you ever slap one? I'm embarrassed to admit, but I have to be transparent. I did because it's what I watched my dad do when I was a little kid. And it's what I watched mm -hmm. men do in movies. Mm -hmm. Most people don't know that because they're very young. If you go back and you watch many of the most famous movies in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, mm. slapping a woman was completely normal. Mm. Women would become what men called hysterical, which is an incredibly sexist statement. And the way that you dealt with a woman being hysterical is you would slap them. And then all of a sudden they would snap out of it and then they would romantically kiss you and life was perfect. Unfortunately, that's not true. And it's fucking disgusting and it's, and it's, it's reprehensible. And the fact that I had to be honest with him and say, yeah, I slapped a couple of them. He said to me, Khalil, if you love somebody, you never, ever, ever push them or slap them or hit them or curse them or rage at them. That's not love. So no, my friend, I'm sorry. They didn't abandon you. They escaped. Whew. Fuck, man. How helpful, though, to have somebody to be able to be that direct with you and, you know, have space in your life to actually absorb that information. Like, bless you, Robbie. <laughs> Thank God for Robbie. I mean, look, if I wasn't sober, I couldn't have received that information. I cried. Absolutely. Over, I cried over that information a lot. Mm. And then one by one, to the best of my ability, I had to go back to every one of them and had to make amends. Mm. Fuck, man. That was so gnarly. That was mm. so gnarly, but it was so liberating at the same time. And like, Yeah, absolutely. On the other side of it, um, if you could give wisdom to people who have suffered, you know, physical or sexual trauma, like, because I know that that's a big part of your story, um, or have felt like they have misbehaved terribly in relationships, but now want to make amends and get sober, what are some words of wisdom that you could give them? Hmm. That, that, that's, that's a heavy question. Um, 
as far as the, the the sexual trauma or being abused sexually as a child or whatever, one of the and and I and I don't mean to sound dismissive at all, but one of the things that really, really, really helped me to understand is it is so fucking common. Mm. It is so untalked about and swept under the rug and kept hush hush. We are literally taught to not talk about stuff like that. Mm. And 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 <laughs> like my God, look at the fucking Catholic Church. Yeah. They're a superpower. They are a superpower. The Vatican, the Vatican is its own city. And look at how they covered it up. Well, you know what? I went to Catholic schools. Oh, so-and-so touched your thigh or so-and-so asked you to take your clothes off. Don't talk about that. You'll get in big trouble. Or if you touch yourself down there, you're going to go to hell or you're going to grow hair on your palms. I mean, all that weird shit, we were literally taught to suppress our sexuality, to not, to not touch ourselves. And if somebody else touched us, God forbid, we were told to never speak about it. And the worst part about it is my mom's response. And listen, I love my mom you know, more than anything. And I love her now. I love her more now that she's gone than I did when she was alive. But when I was five years old, six years old, and I went to my mom and I said, mom, he won't stop touching me down there. He won't stop touching me. And I kept grabbing her arm. She didn't even look at me. Mm -hmm. She didn't even look at me. She literally pushed me away and said, he's just tickling you. That wasn't tickling. I knew what tickling was. I knew better. And, and, and my dad, when I finally got the balls to tell my dad, my dad said, you're a goddamn liar. So what I want to tell to people out there that have gone through stuff like that is you're not alone. You are way, you have way more company than you could ever imagine. The difference is I can speak about it so openly and honestly because I've worked through it. I've gotten past it. I've let go of all of the anger and the resentment over it. Mm. And what ended up happening in the midst of all that is the shame and the ickiness. <laughs> Here's the funny thing about it. What I found ultimately was Brian, my swim coach, who was in his late 30s when he did what he did to me, and I was you know, nine years old, 10 years old, my, my half-brother um, who did what he did to me when I was four years old, five years old. Um, and a couple different boys in the neighborhood, um, and one, and one babysitter, one girl babysitter who I thought I was in love with. Um, what I realized is I never felt ick towards them, which I should have, cause it's fucking, yeah. the ick was pointed inward. Yeah. I felt, I felt ick towards me. I thought 100%. something was wrong with me, right? Because what most people will never talk about because it's not appropriate, I was taught that that's how you get attention. So I sought that attention. Right. And another thing which no one ever, ever talks about is I did feel pleasure in those acts. I did feel pleasure. So I... Mm. I internalized it and felt that it was my fault. I questioned my sexuality. I questioned whether I was gay or not. I questioned whether, you know, I provoked it and it was my fault. Here's the bottom line. It is what it is. It happened. It's horrific. It should never happen to a child, but it did. And I had to make peace with it and I had to let it go. And I couldn't go on resenting those people and I couldn't go on 
internally thinking that something was wrong with me, I had to just make peace with it and let it go. And the best way that I could do that is by talking about it openly and honestly with other men and women and realizing that, my God, it's way, way, way more common than not. Yeah, You will very, very rarely come across any well-adjusted adult um, or broken adult that, that didn't go through, you know, that didn't have some uncle or some, you know, somebody that looked at him weird or touched them weird or did this or did that. Sometimes it's super extreme. Sometimes it's a father raping his own daughter for years at a time when they're a child. And sometimes it's just, you know, other inappropriate touching or whatever by a relative or by a stranger. But I think most people go through that. And if you can understand that, we can all move past it and we can stop it. We can stop it from happening. Absolutely. Or at least be having the conversation in which people can therefore heal from. I think where the difficulty tends to lie with it is, and I think it's so brilliant that you're talking about this and thank you for being so brave to speak about it, especially as a guy, because you know, often hear about it from a male perspective is that, you know, we think that this is just me or whatever, like, you know, and also talking about the fact that you, as somebody who was experiencing that, the shame around having enjoyed that. And I remember explaining this to somebody in recovery a while back and just sort of saying, well, of course, because we have the genitalia and it worked. It did the thing that it did, right? right? So yes, I had a stimulating experience from that, but was I a young you know, was I a minor? Was that inappropriate? Absolutely. Yeah. It doesn't mean I'm a bad person. And then somehow, because the conversation's not had, had or it's not held in the right space, or people are terrified and batting off their own shame around their own experience, around what have made happen to them, we don't get to heal from that. And then we internalize that. And thank God, I just think that we're in recovery. We get a chance to do that internal work here. And, um, you know, if I wasn't so Ben, it sounds like same for you, that you wouldn't get a chance to heal from that. And it's, it's a really rewarding journey, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it is. And it's also part of what makes me who I am. And, you know, and it, it is what it is. I mean, I, I'm, everything I went through got me to where I am today. So I have to be grateful for all of it. And I know that sounds weird, but it's just the truth. A hundred percent. I'm totally with you. And yeah, I'm just, I'm really, I'm really uh, thankful that you shared that with us today because I think it's really inspiring for anybody who may be listening. So let's dive right into the lightning round. And this is just where we lighten up, whip up the conversation. <laughs> and these are just questions that are just sort of one word answers spontaneously. Just don't censor yourself. Let whatever comes up, come up. Are sure. you ready? Yeah, of course. Sweet. What's your favorite smoothie today? The million dollar smoothie. Oh, yeah. Describe it. <laughs> uh, tastes like an Oreo shake, but it's super packed, nutrient dense, and just really, really good for you. Hell yes. Uh, what is on your bedside table? My bedside table. Cats. There's a variation of there's a variation of a million dollar smoothie. There is a <laughs> coffee with two shots of espresso in it. There is some Sun Life Organics aloe mint water. There is a tube of conscious coconut, coconut oil. Uh, use your imagination. There, <laughs> there's an iPhone. There is a glass bottle of mountain Valley water. 
like five hundred beverages. The fucking size of your bedside table. Quill. It's tiny. It's tiny. I'm just How? telling you. Just filled it. with beverages. <laughs> Sounds like an entire like and lube blackout like uh, an entire <laughs> wardrobe. It's amazing. Thank you. What turns you on? Turns me on. Truth. Oh, I love that. Yay. How do you play? Sexual or otherwise. (laughs) How do I play? Um, I joke around a lot. Um, Inappropriate gallows humor. Um, Louisa, you remember that because (laughs) I was the the master of that. And I, I obviously, I have to temper myself because of the whole cancel culture environment. Now I have to be very, very careful because I have to realize that, you know, people get offended very easily. Um, but when I was newly sober, I was taught we needed to laugh, that laughter was the best medicine. Mm. We, we, we crave community and laughter is one of the best ways to get to know someone and to share with someone. And, you know, let's be honest, we can't all go down on one another, but we can all make one another laugh. And laugh, oh, yes. laughter and sexuality are very, they're, they're close because it's a sharing of energy. What I learned in sober lit, well, in rehab, what I learned in rehab and what I, what I learned in sober living was the more profane, the more inappropriate that the subject matter is, the harder we're all going to laugh. You just have to make sure that you know your audience. So in, in other words, I don't know your audience. So I can't make a joke about my ethnicity. I can't make a joke about my penis size. I can't make a joke about whatever. But if I know my audience, if I'm sitting around with you know four of my guy friends, in fact, this happened yesterday. Um, there were people were talking. Um, we, we were having dinner at um, this very very fancy. I'm just gonna fucking say it because he's not sober. We were having dinner at John Paul DeJoria's house, and John Paul DeJoria is one of the coolest fucking human beings that's ever lived. John Paul DeJoria started Paul Mitchell hair care products and he started Patron and he owns about 200 companies. He's a massive, massive, massive philanthropist. And we were sitting at his house on, on uh, Lake Austin. It's a river. And <laughs> his son was there and his wife is there. And, you know, there's a bunch of people sitting at the table and we started talking about how I accidentally ended up in Florence and his son goes, Oh my God, did you see, it was a pretty formal dinner, private chef, you know, big table. And his son goes, Oh my God, did you see the statue of David? And I said, I did. Oh my. And everyone at the table was like, isn't it amazing? And I go, it is, but why was it? Why, why is his penis so big? And there was a pregnant pause and, and the wife was the first one to start cracking up. The son was the second one to start cracking up. And then when everyone realized, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the statue of David. He has, yes. like, he has like a little micro penis. <laughs> right? But when I said, why is his penis so giant? It was so fucking funny that it was one of the best experiences of that dinner because gallows humor is amazing. It's fun. There's a reason why they call it gallows humor because what you were witnessing was so horrific. You had to make jokes about it in order to to deal with how fucking unbearable it was that there was this monarchy and there was this king and if you said something wrong, they'd cut your fucking head off. That's a horrible existence. So people learned to use dark humor, gallows humor, 
to cope with life. So how do I play? Sorry, I went off on a tangent, <laughs> but how do I play? I make fucking jokes and I make my girlfriend laugh and she makes me laugh and I do little dances around the room naked and I just, I'm just, I'm goofy. That's how I play. Beautiful. Beautiful. Love it. And finally, what do you love? I love life. I love life. I love the good, the bad, the ugly, the painful. I fucking love this life. And I'm so embarrassed that I took it for granted for 33 years. I took it all for granted. And I, I'm, I'm ashamed of that. Um, but what I'm grateful for is that I got a second chance. And I get to, just like my cats, I get to indulge in the intoxication of perfect existence. Oh, oh, fantastic. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank Khalil. you so much. It's been such an honor to have you here today. And where can people find you on the internet? I mean, you can go onto my Instagram if, if, if you promise not to scroll back too far, because I don't want <laughs> I already to- just did, by the way. So many, <laughs> so many islands. I mean, Look, cats. Man, I, I'm full of fucking flaws and you're going to see that in there. But I promise you, if you read the captions, even if I do put up some douchey, horrible, pretentious picture of me on a private jet, which I'm doing my, trying my best not to do, um, any more humble bragging. Cause Lord knows I did enough of it. Um, you can look at, look, you look at my Instagram, Khalil Rafati or at Khalil Rafati. Um, but I think, I think much better than that and me engaging in my humble bragging and my, you know, pretending to be a, a writer. Um, you can look at Sun Life Organics, look at, look up, look up Sun Life Organics and look at the, look at the incredible company that it is and recognize the greatness and the power of a female brand that is run by women and the people that work there are mostly women. Most of the customers are women. Sun Life Organics is my legacy. And Sun Life Organics was gifted to me by divine feminine energy. And when I leave this planet, I will leave it knowing that I had something to do with Sun Life Organics. And that's what I'm most proud of. My, my silly little Instagram, yeah, please go on there and follow me and hit like as much as possible because I am crowdsourcing my self-esteem through social media. <laughs> <Simpson>. <laughs> That's about, that's about it. Uh, Sun Life Organics at Khalil Rafati. My book is called I Forgot to Die. It's dark. It's harrowing. It is available on Amazon. It's not in French yet. It's in Russian, Spanish, English, and Bulgarian. I didn't even know there was a Bulgarian. <laughs> there is. Um, I Forgot to Die. It's also available on Audible. And my newest book, which not that many people are buying, but the people that read it fucking love it and have given it really great reviews um, is called Remembering to Live. And Remembering to Live is a self-help book. I Forgot to Die is a dark memoir. Remembering to Live is a self-help book about, you know, look, if you're newly sober and you really do want to achieve some sort of, you know, material wealth or success in life, I'm going to show you, I'm going to, I'm going to give you empirical evidence that you can and will do it. And the reason being is because if a fucking moron like me can do it, anybody can do it.